We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to take out your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter, the book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter. And I will be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 4 through 8. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And I encourage you to read along silently as I read aloud these verses this morning. For here we read beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace today. Thank you for bringing us here together in fellowship with you and with one another. And we would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher and guide, that he would lead us into all truth, that he would grant us an understanding of this very interesting and somewhat controversial passage. We would ask, O oh God, that you would renew our mind, that you would instruct us from above, that you would transform our thinking and our lives in such a way that we bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we think and say and do. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As believers, you and I are being conformed to the image of Christ. And as we are, we are being blessed with many spiritual blessings and benefits. In fact, as we have been observing in our consideration of Hebrews chapter 6 so far, we are not only blessed with the knowledge of Christ and of doctrines which are associated with him, but we are also being exposed to the whole counsel of God, which was first presented to us in foundational doctrines and which are now conveyed to us as we learn and grow more and more in what we have been exposed to. And as we are growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, we are showing forth true and genuine evidences that the Spirit of God has indeed regenerated us and that we possess by God's gracious enabling a deep and sincere desire to move on now to spiritual maturity. And we are also confident not in ourselves but in the power of God's Spirit that we will continue growing in maturity given that God has already preordained it. In fact, the writer of this epistle reminded his readers and us back at the end of verse 5, which I commented only briefly on last Sunday, that we are only able to move on to maturity if God permits us to do so. 
because we cannot do this work ourselves. We cannot mature ourselves. It is the Spirit of God that matures us. And yet we are also assured in countless other places in Scripture that God not only permits this, but he has willed it. He has decreed it on behalf of his people. And so you and I will be matured in our most holy faith if we have been regenerated and indwelled by the blessed Holy Spirit. In fact, let us be fully convinced this morning that those who have been justified will in fact be sanctified. And those who are being sanctified will ultimately be glorified. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. For this is that certain and unbreakable golden chain of redemption that God uses to hold us firm and to accomplish his work in his elect. And yet what about certain persons who are in the church who never go on to maturity despite the fact they appear to enjoy all the blessings that are associated with salvation? What shall be the ultimate outcome for those individuals, despite the earnest appeals of preachers to redirect them with calls to true repentance? Well, beloved, these are important questions that are now being raised by our text this morning. For here in Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 4 through 8, the writer gives us a disturbing description is a description of a person who was once a participant in the life and the worship of the Christian church where God meets with his people, but who later fell away. And not only did they fall away, but it became impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. And so the situation described here is the opposite of the maturing process that was described back in verses 1 through 3. You'll remember in verses 1 through 3, the person described was a true believer who is struggling like a spiritual child who needs to recognize and accept his responsibilities and to mature as an, as an adult. Whereas here in verses 4 through 8, we have one who once appeared to have a knowledge of certain blessings and privileges who ultimately rejects them as well as the Lord Jesus Christ, which I propose to you this morning that even an infant Christian would not and could not do. So it's an, a very interesting situation. It's a very interesting scenario for us to consider. And for that reason, these verses are, are very controversial. And unfortunately, they are often misinterpreted by some who have a faulty view of salvation. Not everybody understands what the Bible teaches about salvation. For example, some claim by appealing directly to these verses, verses 4 through 8, that a true believer can fall away and lose his or her salvation. Still others have suggested that believers can commit the unpardonable sin, 
which they believe is mentioned here in some way, and therefore believers can forfeit their ability to repent and to be restored. In fact, they insist that the person being described here in these verses is a believer who has committed something truly unpardonable, and therefore they cannot be renewed to repentance again. So as we approach these verses this morning, we acknowledge the fact that these verses have been a source of considerable fear and apprehension even for the true people of God, given that these verses are often very poorly and unskillfully handled from pulpits today. And of course, one reason that they have been is because many in the church today do not understand the doctrine of justification. They do not understand that God justifies his people freely and that once a person has been justified through the act of God, they are forever accepted by God and cannot lose their salvation. They do not understand the doctrine of justification. They don't have an adequate defense against the demonic doctrine that salvation can be lost. And notice my words very carefully. The demonic doctrine that salvation can be lost. We spent some time last week talking about fundamental doctrines like the doctrine of salvation. Well, there are other doctrines that the Bible refers to like doctrines of demons. And I would suggest to you that the doctrine that salvation can be lost is not a fundamental doctrine. It's not a true doctrine of scripture. It is a doctrine of demons. In fact, as Arminianism and man-centered theology have grown more and more popular over the years, these verses are often misquoted and misapplied to intimidate true believers into thinking that the person described here in our text this morning, verses 4 through 8, could somehow, under the right conditions, be them. And that if they sin and fall away one too many times, they could somehow pass over some invisible line where they could no longer repent and no longer be restored, even if they later felt that they had a desire to do so. However, if we take a careful look at the much larger context Surrounding these verses, we will see that the salvation of true believers is never in question. The salvation of true believers is never in question. For going back as far as Hebrews chapter 3, we have been presented with a series of grand promises that assure us that we will, as God's people, be saved. Not because you and I have strength in and of ourselves to persevere, but we will be saved because of God's own choice of us in election and because of Christ's constant intercession for us as our high priest. For in chapter 3, you and I were reminded at the very beginning of that chapter that we share in a heavenly calling. That calling is ours. We are called to God and kept safe by that calling. Then in chapters 4 and 5, we're reminded that God has promised us rest, and we are assured of this rest by our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens and who is not only able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who is able to give us 
an endless supply of mercy and grace in the time of need. There's much that's said prior to these verses to assure us that our salvation in God is secure. And so the larger context that precedes this text this morning, that precedes Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 8, makes no suggestion whatsoever that our salvation as true believers could easily be lost if we fall away or if we commit some particular sin, if there is such a sin, that we can't be forgiven or restored from. Not only this, but the verses that immediately follow our sermon text this morning make it clear that our salvation as believers is not in jeopardy. And I do not normally urge you to look ahead to the texts that follow what we're examining, but I think in this case, as we're dealing with this text, it would be helpful for us to do so. So if you have your Bibles open, please look, if you would please, at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. We're, we're looking as a text at verses 4 through 8, but look at the next verse, verse 9. For here the writer makes a statement that also helps us to put verses 4 through 8 in context. For the writer states these words, Though I speak this way, yet in your case, in your case, referring to those who are true believers, beloved, those who are loved of God, we feel sure of better things Things that belong to salvation. So it's clear in the words of the writer that he's speaking of two different groups of people. Those who are in verses 4 through 8 and those who are mentioned in verse 9 of whom he is absolutely certain belong the things of salvation. For by making this statement here in verse 9, the writer is assuring these believers that their case is not the same as he describes back in verses 4 through 8. For in the case of these readers, the one that the writer is addressing here in our text, he felt sure of better things. Remember that contrast. It's very, very important. In addition, the writer also expresses his confidence that these better things that God is producing in them were the things that belonged to salvation. Or in other words, they were the things that evidenced the reality that these individuals were truly in possession of saving grace as opposed to those described in verses 4 through 8 which I'm going to suggest to you very strongly this morning, we're not in possession of saving grace. For as we consider the bigger picture, we see that a contrast is being made between those who are being saved and who are moving towards spiritual maturity, those who are true believers, and those who are not. Those who are not, despite the fact that they had been given some light, and despite the fact that they did have some spiritual insight, and despite the fact that they enjoyed some of the blessings 
that had come upon the outward worshiping assembly of God's own people. And so it is vital that we understand who's being described here in verses 4 through 8. And admittedly, these are challenging verses for us to interpret on the surface. Again, note my words carefully. They are challenging verses for us to interpret on the surface. For when we lose sight of the bigger picture, which it's very easy to do at times, these verses seem to suggest that the individuals being mentioned here were once regenerate, that they were once in a state of saving grace, but they had fallen so badly, they had fallen so decisively that it became impossible for them to actually return to faith through the means of repentance and restoration. However, while the language used in these verses is challenging, and I will admit to you, it is challenging, I don't believe it teaches what some have claimed that it does. Rather, the language here, when interpreted correctly, simply confirms what we observe in other places in Scripture. And that is that the sovereign work that God does in salvation is His work. And it also speaks volumes about the destructive nature of reigning sin, which can, in the case of an unbeliever, in the case of an unbeliever, make it impossible for a person to genuinely repent or be restored at all. And so given our conviction that these verses are not talking about a Christian who ultimately rejects the faith, they're not talking about a Christian who cannot repent or be restored, who then, Pastor Jeff, is the person being described here in verses 4 through 8? Let's begin to answer this question this morning by first examining what this person has known and what this person has been exposed to. What this person has known and what this person has been exposed to. For whoever this individual is, he is not ignorant of God's message, nor is he ignorant of the powers that are conveyed through God's message. Rather, the writer mentions here in verses 4 and 5 that this person had once been enlightened, notice this terminology, had tasted of the heavenly gift, had shared in the Holy Spirit, and had tasted in the goodness of the word of God and of the powers to come. And notice here all of these verbs, if you would please, enlightened, tasted, shared, tasted, denoting that some kind of actions had transpired. In addition, all these things suggest some knowledge of God's message and of the power it conveys. In fact, we do not deny that the gospel and the power of the Spirit are being referenced here in these varied expressions. We don't deny that. Yet while these expressions point to the gospel and to the Spirit's power, they say nothing, hear me, these expressions say nothing about the effect that these means had on the person who's being described here. In other words, to put it another way, the writer is not saying that they had an effect on the individuals. The writer is simply saying that they've been exposed to these things, that they've experienced them in some sense or in some context. 
Notice also the writer does not suggest at any point here that this individual had been changed or transformed by them. They had not been changed or transformed by them. In fact, the most that is actually stated is that the light had been received and that some things had been shared or tasted. And while these words suggest a coming into contact with these things, we don't deny they came into contact with the word of God. We don't deny they came into contact with the power of the Holy Spirit. They imply less than a full and complete partaking or a full and complete participation in them. These are really important distinctions to point out. For example, Sinclair Ferguson, a very respected Reformed scholar, I know a number of the men in this room know who Sinclair Ferguson is, writes in an article on these verses that it is possible for individuals to have powerful experiences such as the ones described here in verses 4 through 6. It is possible for a person to have powerful experiences such as the ones described here in verses 4 through 6, the experience of, of realizing that the word of God is powerful, the experience of realizing that the Holy Spirit is present and moving within the community. But these experiences, Ferguson says, are not, are not the definitive marks of a Christian. They are not the definitive marks of a Christian. Just because you know the word of God is powerful, you've heard and seen its power, just because you've had a sense that the Holy Spirit is present is, present, is not irrefutable proof, is not a definitive mark that you are a Christian. These things may be present even when genuine faith is absent. Did you hear that? These things may be present even when genuine faith is absent. In other words, an unbeliever may be present in the worship assembly and say, wow, what power has gone out from the pulpit today? Wow, what power the Holy Spirit has expressed through his movement within that congregation today and yet not be a true believer, yet not have genuine faith in Christ. For the writer is clearly, clearly relating to us what is possible to experience without actually being a genuine Christian. Those are Sinclair Ferguson's words, not mine. Rather, all these experiences could be, and, and I believe that they serve here simply as confirmation that the individual who's being described here was both knowledgeable and accountable for what he experienced both knowledgeable, knowledgeable and accountable of what he experienced. But being accountable and knowledgeable doesn't equal the new birth. Does that make sense? I pray that it does. Being knowledgeable and accountable does not equal the new birth. In fact, nothing in these verses require us to assume or to conclude that the person who knew or experienced them was actually saved. In fact, I would submit to you that this first expression here in verse 4 had once been enlightened simply means that they had once been given a knowledge of the gospel and of its truthfulness. 
In other words, God shined light upon them in their minds to an extent to where they understood that the gospel that was being preached was powerful and true. Didn't change the heart, make them wanting and desiring that, but they were enlightened to the fact that what was being preached was unusual. It was from God and it was powerful. And yet simply knowing the truth of the gospel does not save anyone. I know you have to think about that for just a few moments, but I want you to think about it carefully. Just knowing the truth of the gospel does not save anyone. There must be genuine faith in Christ as the focus of the gospel. You understand the distinction? It's an important distinction. There is nothing in our text that suggests that the individual who's described here in beginning in verse 4 possesses true saving faith. They possess an understanding and enlightenment that the gospel is true and powerful. But there's no indication here that they trusted in that power personally, that their focus was on upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, these expressions have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted of the word of God and the power to come are not being utilized here to describe the benefits of salvation. Because that's not what's in the context here. There are references to the spiritual benefits that are received and conveyed in the assembly of God's people whenever they're gathered together in public worship. So in other words, by being present in the public worship of God with the people of God, there's a sense in which they, they tasted in those gifts that God gave that assembly, that they shared in the presence of the Holy Spirit that was manifested in that assembly, that they tasted, that they had a sense of the truthfulness of the word of God and of the power of the age to come. In other words, they had an appreciation that God was at work, not necessarily in them. They didn't own that, but they could not deny that God was indeed present, which makes their condemnation even more damning. Because God gave them at least that enlightenment to know that he was with and among his people when they gathered together for public worship. For whenever the saints of God gather in spirit and in truth, God not only reveals the truthfulness of his gospel to his own people, but he also gives those presents a foretaste of his heavenly gift of sharing in the possibility of the spirit's movement and of the goodness of God and of the power of the age to come. All of these things are communicated through the means of public worship and specifically by our participation in worship. And even those who are present as non-believers are blessed. What? Even those who are present who are non-believers are blessed in a general non-saving sense from the benefits that flow down from God on the waiting and worshiping congregation. You know, we talk about believers being blessed by God through common grace, right? Believers who don't embrace the Lord Jesus Christ are 
blessed from God through his kind providence and common grace. There is a sense in which unbelievers who attend our worship services are blessed by the services, not in a saving way, but through the presence and work of God in a general non-saving sense among them. Therefore, I would submit to you that the one who's described here in verses 4 through 8 of Hebrews 6 is not a Christian who temporarily falls and who forfeits any opportunity for repentance or for restoration, but an unbeliever who for some reason or another is participating within the worshiping assembly of the Christian church and who could not intellectually refute the truthfulness of the faith who could not deny the power of what he had seen and experienced, but who through the progressive hardening of his own sinful heart, over time decisively rejects the gospel. In other words, even though he sees all of these glorious things and he's blessed in a sense from what he's been exposed to, he still rejects the gospel. He still rejects the gospel. And in time, God gives him up to the dictates and the depravity of his own tragic choices. Been exposed to so much light, to so many blessings, to so many opportunities by the grace of God that God eventually gives this individual up to the dictates and the depravity of their own tragic choices. In fact, this interpretation is consistent with the repeated warnings throughout the book of Hebrews about not hardening one's heart. It is also consistent with the Apostle Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 1 and verses 24 through 32 in particular that declares that God, through his own prerogative, gives up unbelievers to a wicked and debased mind and eventually leaves individuals entirely foolish and faithless, leaves them in a state where they're unable to repent or to be restored to a right and submissive mind. I would suggest this is just another evidence of that truth here in Hebrews chapter 6. And so once again, what we have here in Hebrews 6 is is not a description of a believer, but one who later fell. But we have a description of an unbeliever who had been given every opportunity to believe, having been exposed to the truth of the gospel, having been exposed to the presence of the Spirit, having been exposed to the goodness of the Word, having been exposed in a sense to the reality of the power of the age to come, and yet they still depart. They still depart from the Christian assembly in unbelief and return to their sin. In fact, when the writer states here in verse 6 that they had fallen away, he does not mean that they fell from a state of grace. There, there is no such thing as falling from a state of saving grace because that would be impossible for a believer to do and I would insist that this believer, or excuse me, this person in this text, verses 4 through 8, is not a believer. But rather, the writer means that they departed from that place where they had been exposed to and had been in some sense blessed by 
the ways of God as they were presented in worship. For this person who is described here in verses 4 through 8 had been at least an outward observer of the people of God. Had been in some sense an external participant, as it were, in the worship of God. However, they left. They fell away from their temporary practice of being present at worship as the means of grace were communicated. And you'll recall from our reading of scripture this morning, before the sermon, we read from 1 John about those who went away from us, that it might be made manifest that they were never of us. There are some who can linger long in the assembly of God and be blessed in an external sense by what happens. But in time, God reveals the heart. In time, God calls them out, as it were, that it might be made manifest that they were never really among us. And so not only did they depart from the assembly, but they ultimately resolved in their own hearts and minds that the grace of repentance and the sacrifice of Christ was not of use to them. For the writer states here in verse 6 that they had fallen away and they could not be restored again to repentance since, notice this, they had crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm and held him up to contempt. Interesting words. They had crucified the Son of God to their own harm. And held him up to contempt. Now needless to say this description of what they were doing here. Remember who we're talking about here. Non-believers. Unbelievers. We shouldn't take this description of what they're doing here. Literally, because no one can crucify Jesus Christ again, right? No one can truly hold Jesus Christ up to contempt, for Christ is now crowned with glory. But rather, the language here means that God removed from them the saving grace that was needed for repentance, since repentance is a gift from God, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Given that these persons eventually concluded in their minds that Jesus was not worthy of their faith, and in their depraved hearts they looked on the cross of Christ as an object of contempt or of shame. And so rather than heeding God's call to believe in Jesus Christ, which had been accompanied by the evidence of the goodness of God and the power of God, these unbelieving individuals described here in verses 4 through 8 became unreachable and unchangeably unrepentant. Unreachable and unchangeably unrepentant. In fact, the strong language that the writer uses here, especially in verses 4 and 6 of Hebrews 6, speaks of the absolute impossibility of his genuine repentance. The absolute impossibility. Since he rejected Christ so conclusively, the finality is the ultimate act of rejection, as well as the absolute certainty that he would never be restored 
to a place of spiritual receptiveness to the gospel. Never be restored. Notice the words used by the Hebrew writer. Never be restored. Could you honestly say that about a Christian, that they could never, ever be restored? No, you could not say that. Can you say that about an unbeliever who progressively is hardened and hardened and hardened over time? Who ultimately decides that the crucifixion of Christ is of no use for him whatsoever? And holds our Lord's person and work in contempt. The idea here is that if a person gets to the place where they ultimately reject Christ as unworthy of their belief and unworthy of their respect, despite all the evidence of God's grace and presence and goodness and power that accompanies the sweetness of the gospel, that person has been given up by God to a state of permanent unbelief. Strong words, given up by God to a state of permanent unbelief. In fact, in such cases, they are not able to believe whatsoever. And in such cases, we are not to believe for better things for them. But we are willingly to submit to the knowledge that some men are simply not appointed to believe. We have to accept that, that in some cases men simply are not appointed to believe. For although they appear for a brief season to believe, although they appear for a brief season even within the worship services of the church, appear to be participating in the worship of God's people, they are like a field that has been repeatedly watered in hopes of producing a crop, but the soil is so polluted, the soil is so corrupted that nothing good will grow from it. Nothing good, but that which is worthless and useless for planting and suitable only for burning. And of course, this is the, the very illustration that the writer to the Hebrews concludes with here in verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews chapter 6. Notice what he says. The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing. We're so happy when the soil responds to the rain and to the word, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And so good things happen spiritually when those who are watered by the means of grace receive them by faith. And we and they receive the fullness of all the blessings that the writer describes in the early part of this book. For when we've been truly regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are not merely enlightened to see the gospel. We are not merely enabled to fully believe the gospel. We not only merely taste of the heavenly gift and of the communion of the Spirit and of the goodness of the word and of the powers to come, but we are enabled to drink fully from all of them, to enjoy them fully if we have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. And if you've been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, you already know 
what God is able to do for you that was once impossible. For God has enlightened you and enabled you to share and to enjoy all the great blessings to enable you to bring forth a rich harvest of spiritual fruit that once is cultivated brings glory to God. However, in the case of those who produce thorns and thistles, as the writer states here in verse 8, they will not remain in the assembly. They may appear for a season, nor will they enjoy the bountiful harvest of God, but their works are worthless. The writer says, near to be cursed, the time is coming, and in the end, they will be burned. And therefore, what the writer is doing here in our text this morning is not only answering the question, why do some who once appear within the worshiping assembly depart, but he's also urging us not to be like them. Not to be like them, for there's still hope for those who remain within the assembly of God's people, for those who are receptive by God's grace to the gospel, for those who stay loyal to the gospel and the means of grace, they will know and serve the living God. But what a sad verdict we hear this morning for those who remain outside of grace and outside of the gospel. And so let us be warned from these passages as well. Not to assume too quickly that the things that appear to be spiritual are indeed spiritual. But time will tell. Faithfulness will reveal all things of the work of the Spirit. Let us be faithful to the means of grace. Let us be faithful to the worshiping assembly of God. That's the idea here. That's what's being conveyed here. Let us not be like those who stay for a season, but who ultimately depart. God knows the heart. He's the only one who knows the heart. May we trust him to work in the lives of individuals. And may we trust in him for the saving of our souls this morning, if we be among his people. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. We thank you even for this difficult text that we've wrestled with to some degree this morning to understand and to communicate and how humbling it is to hear a text like here, like this, to, to read this, this difficult text to receive description of one who is not a believer. And yet we as your people need to hear these things. We need to be reminded of these truths. We need to know that you have a purpose and a plan. And that according to your purpose and plan, many will receive the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy the blessings of salvation, but some never will. Some will be given over to a depraved mind and their hearts will be hardened against the Lord Jesus Christ. They will consider him worthless and contemptuous. And Father, may that not be anyone here in this assembly. May you work by your spirit powerfully. 
to save all whom you call through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would ask, dear Lord, for an appreciation of these truths this morning and for the humility to receive them and for a greater understanding of what your word teaches. We ask your blessing in every way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.